All right. Welcome back to the conversation. I am Ryan Grimm, and I'm filling in today for Jenk, and I'm joined here by Akela Lacey, my colleague over at The Intercept. We're going to talk about two recent pieces that she's done, one on the push for police reform in Congress, and the other to try to end what is widely considered to be a scam that ought to be illegal. This is what's known as surprise billing. This is when you you go to a hospital, you go to a doctor's office, you expect to get a certain bill, you get surprised by a different bill. You know, there's almost a cliche, there's a cliche out there that says, God, there ought to be a law. Well, in this case, there ought to be a law. And so for several years now, Congress has been trying to write this law. Akela Lacey has been uh, covering the effort to do this. And it is one of the most kind of heartbreaking and hysterical efforts on, on, on the part of Congress, because it's like, wait, you can't even end something that is so obviously, ridiculously ought to be illegal as getting a bill that is higher than what you expected to pay when you went to the hospital. So, uh, Akela, tell us a little bit about what surprise billing is and how Richie Neal, uh, the Ways and Means Committee chairman, who uh, TYT viewers know as as the guy who uh, won re-election thanks to the homophobic smear against Alex Morse is. So surprise billing is when uh, you go to you know the ER or hospital or you're treated somewhere that you think is in network and uh, a physician attends to you that ends up being out of network and then you get home and you get a bill for you know a couple hundred dollars that you never expected um, and you have no recourse basically and the the issue right. so you're you're so the hospital is in network but then they're the doctor is somehow out of network. Right. Like and there's no way for you to check that or, you know, even if you check ahead of time to make sure that the hospital you're going to is in network, like there's no way for you to know. They're not going to tell you when the, the when the doctor comes into your room, like, do you want to make sure that you right. want this treatment? Um, and the issue with with COVID, this is exacerbated with the, the coronavirus pandemic because a lot of insurance companies told their their clients that even if they went to an emergency room and this happened, that any any um, treatment related to COVID would be covered. And we're seeing that that, you know, that obviously wasn't the case for a lot of people. Um, but this is one of the things that is probably the most um, financially burdensome on people and that could be done away with, you know, easily if we didn't have people in Congress who were um, more concerned about, you know, protecting the interests of private equity um, groups that have been profiting off of this and that created this is created the issue of surprise billing um, to allow them to profit off of of hospitals and, and health care providers that they've absorbed. Over right. The years. right. 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 Yeah. So and this touches on something we've talked uh, a lot about here, which is con consolidation and the financialization of, of American life. So like what, what you're saying is the all of the, the private equity groups, Blackstone as the as the leading one has gone out and they've they've bought up a whole bunch of these doctor networks. You know, doctors rather than having their own private practices had banded together in these networks. And then Blackstone, this private equity goes and, and buys them up and and then figures out, okay, these ones are out of network, these ones are in network. Let's you know, let's let's have our McKinsey MIT type folks you know figure out the the most sophisticated way that we can sneak the most amount of out of network doctors into the in network situation. So these these private equity executives are, uh, you know, big, big donors uh, to Democrats. 
uh, Donald Trump, you know, had you know campaigned on lowering drug prices, lowering uh, lo lowering health care prices, and made an effort to to crack down on this. The Democrats had said they were going to do this as well. How can you have both parties saying that they're going to do something? There's only two parties that get elected to office, as far as I know, unless you know of another one, other than I guess Bernie Sanders and the independent, uh, the independent. So both parties are for this. What what happened? Why like why hadn't this happened until this weekend? So uh, you know, Wendell Primus, um, Nancy Pelosi's top um, policy advisor on on health, you know, told people that he was going to take a plan to McConnell. Um, I think it was last weekend, and um, there was uh, an understanding that that plan was going to look a little bit more like the energy and commerce version of of the surprise um, billing provision mm -hmm. that would have given. Um, would have not, you know, been favorable for for private equity for for um, for providers. Which and and this this fight doesn't fall along, you know, clean political lines. We're talking a lot about, um, you know, what would benefit insurers versus what would benefit providers. And private equity mm -hmm. is actually on the side of of providers and um, you know and hospitals in this case. But basically, um, everyone, you know, no one was happy with the whatever proposal they thought that that Primus was going to bring to McConnell. Richie Neal already had, um, you know, a chip on his shoulder on this issue. He had he had shut down a bill um, to address surprise billing last year that you know had broad bipartisan support, um, and somehow, you know, as we reported, has has finagled his way into having jurisdiction over an issue that the Ways and Means Committee really doesn't have jurisdiction over. But um, the idea that his, uh, you know, his corporate donors would would be very upset if if Congress were to act on this as swiftly as they were poised to, um, you know, gives him a little bit more leverage over, you know, over the the leadership in the in the House that would have allowed him to, you know, single handedly derail, you know, as we saw last week, um, they were close to trying to to get this into the relief package and and. Richie Neal put up a fight because he he didn't like the version that they were that they were moving towards. Um, they there seems to be some movement. You know, ENC put out another. They, they've agreed on a, a different version, and it's unclear whether you know whether the window has passed for that to actually make it into um, a relief package. But uh, you know, obviously they're responding to how bad it looks that they were <laughs> that there's one right. guy uh, you know throwing a tantrum in the middle of in the middle of the house and stopping this from happening. Yeah, it's 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 kind of a fascinating story about the way that politics actually affects people's lives, like in in a in a real way, and in in in, a, in, a, in the way that it kind of legalizes uh, thievery. You know, you get so people say that if you're on Wall Street and you like the beach, you've got a lot of different places to go. You like the mountains, you go to the Berkshires. Uh, this 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 picturesque uh, uh, place out in Western Massachusetts mountains as far as the eye can see it's it's kind of a post-industrial wasteland if you live there uh but if you just vacation there quite lovely you know, <laughs> who, who represents that area richie richie neal so you, you the 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 man who represents the vacation homes of of the private equity executives winds up being in a place where he can protect a business model that was basically to go around uh, buy up as many doctor and hospital providers as they can, and and then kind of just trick people into having to pay a little extra money. And so, wh wh what I found fascinating was the the solution that Congress has so far come up with. I don't I don't think that they've I don't think they're done with this. I think they might want to say, hey, we solved uh, surprise billing, so we're we're done with this. We're moving on. Uh, but like as 
as the, as the, as the situation exists currently, you've got the, the providers and like you said, the private equity people on one side, and then you have patients and insurance companies on the other side and they're fighting. And so as the private equity people win, you know, then the patients and the insurers have, have to pay more money. And so what Congress did is they came in and they said, okay, we're going to reform this from now on patients are going to be capped at what they have to pay. Insurers, you fight it out with the private, the private equity people. Like that's, this is, this is between our, our name's Paul, you know, this is between y'all. And what's, <laughs> what was fascinating to me about this is that we're so cynical. We think about the, you know, the insurers and the private equity companies as, as really running Congress. But when it came down to it, it was, and it's, are patients going to benefit here? or insurers gonna benefit in this terrible short-term like compromise that they're coming up with. It's actually the insurers that got screwed and the patients that that got taken care of in, in a way. Now, everybody is gonna pay higher premiums because that's what insurers do. They're, they're not, not gonna say, oh, well, that's too bad. I guess we're gonna have you know lower lower bonuses and lower salaries and, and you know lower dividends for our shareholders this year so that we can take care of our patients. No, of course not. You know, they're gonna, they're gonna spread the pain out among the patients, but when it came to who was going to suffer immediately in the legislation, they stuck it to the insurers uh, rather than the patients. What, what, what do you make of that, that odd political economy that seems to be, seems to be flowing through this, this Congress right now? Well, I mean, insurers are, were, you know, they were not getting the short end of the stick a couple of months ago when we were talking about these uh, relief packages. And now we're seeing that obviously, you know, I don't think it's, be, I don't think this is a result of patient advocates, you know, getting exactly what they wanted. I think it's more uh, a reflection of the the stranglehold that um, these corporate industries have over, over Congress and the fact that they would rather you know, stick it to the insurance industry, which is pretty close to Wendell Primus and who, you know, was pretty, they were, thro you know, throwing fits over, over um, the, the original version that of the bill that that was being discussed. And so I think it's, it's, a it's more telling that, you know, people are less afraid of pissing off the insurance industry than they are pissing off private equity, which I don't know where that exactly leaves us. But right. yeah, I think, yeah, nobody's happy exactly with the, the mediation is like also a very bureaucratic and expensive process. And so I don't think anyone was, was really happy with that. But the idea is that, you know, the Biden administration doesn't want to have to deal with this you know, after he comes into office, they'd much rather have Democrats, you know, finish it now. But I think that's also, you know, be part part of the reason for that is that he doesn't want to have to go up against these these industries either. Right. And so wh while I've got you here, you you also had a, a, an interesting piece recently that's that talked about the the defund the police backlash that's going on. And so not only it turns out are Democrats kind of you know establishment Democrats able to escape responsibility for whatever culpability responsibility they have for the underperformance that, that they suffered on election day by blaming defund the police. You have a piece out that says that in fact, it's actually having real world implications too. And that legislation that passed the House of Representatives earlier this year uh, now is facing a, 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 tougher, a tougher road uh, be, because of the way that the rhetoric is unfolding around police reform. What, what's going on there? Right. So um, Democrats passed um, the Justice and 
Policing Act uh, this summer in response to protests, you know, which has a myriad of, of different ways that, you know, kind of piecemeal, uh, you know, efforts to, to reform the police. Um, but Democrats are backing away from it right now, like it's the plague. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we heard the infamous, um, you know, caucus call a few days after the election, but we got some reporting on some remarks that were made during that call where people were, you know, Bill Pascrell was um, saying that he was had been made to walk the plank on qualified immunity. Um, we saw another Democrat. Right, this is a moderate Democrat who complaining that he had to vote for it. Who, by the way, was like the top recipient of police money um, in, right. in Congress last year or last session and, um, you know, swiftly, you know, lost the, the endorsement of, of the biggest police union in New Jersey after he voted for um, the Justice and Policing Act, which would have, you know, ended um, ended in ended qualified immunity um, for federal and, and local officials. But uh, the the funny thing is that this is an issue that actually has broad bipartisan support. You have, um, you know, the Koch-packed Americans for Prosperity. You have uh, the Cato Institute. You have Clarence Thomas. You have Tom Brady. And then you have all these progressive groups on the other side saying, like, yeah, we all are in agreement that we think that this uh, this this, it's not even a, a statute. It's a, it's a it's a legally created doctrine um, that has been formed, you know, over decades through through case law. It doesn't exist anywhere in the law, but it gives it affords, uh, you know, it affords this wide latitude that literally no other profession in the country has. Um, we're talking about, you know, being able to avoid um, civil suits, uh, you know, in almost any capacity if you're if you're a police officer. So, um, and and one interesting thing that came out in this piece is that uh, Republican Senator Mike Braun from Indiana, who I think until like until a few hours ago hadn't even acknowledged that Joe Biden won the election, was someone who wanted to reform qualified immunity before um, Democrats started blaming defund the police. You know, he went on Tucker Carlson to talk about his bill and got you know a bunch of of pushback from police unions and ended up backing off of it. And you know has now is now blaming Democrats for you know not stymieing any any sort of progress on on police reform. But uh, so this is you know the 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 qualified immunity stuff is a little bit quieter. I think Democrats are Democrats plan to reintroduce this measure uh, next session. But I think the issue of policing, like the party has made the issue of policing more toxic than it needs to be to the point where they're having people you know back off of things that they were voting for, you know, enthusiastically in June, um, whether that was because they were responding, you know, to immediate pressure from protests is one thing. But um, it stands to, you know, to ask, you know, what what was the impetus for people getting behind this? What did they think they were getting themselves into? Um, also, some of the people that are the most vocal against, you know, against this idea of defund the police were people who voted against the HEROES Act and, and didn't run ads mentioning, you know, jobs uh, within the last six weeks of, of the election and, and did a lot of other things that I think are probably, you know, worth looking at when we're talking about, you know, whether why they didn't perform as, as well as they wanted to um, in November. Well, it took uh, four or five years in the 1960s for the backlash to, you know, fully push Democrats away from uh, c civil rights. Then they did it this time and in four or five months. Great work, Democrats. <laughs> Michaela Lacey, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Great reporting. Looking forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for having Probably me. Probably tomorrow. <laughs> yes, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> All right, welcome back to the conversation. We are joined here by Charles Coleman Jr., a civil rights attorney. Uh, we're we're going to uh, 
talk about a couple of different issues uh, this evening. Uh, but, but first, Charles, th thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So t tell us about the, the case of uh, Casey Goodson. This this uh, you know th this has been uh, shaking people up because I, actually I don't I don't want to uh, I don't want to get too far ahead of it. Um, t t you know tell people what 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 happened to Casey Goodson. So Casey Goodson is a 23 year old or was a 23 year old man, uh, black man who was living in Columbus, Ohio, who last Friday was shot and killed by a, uh, I believe it was a deputy sheriff or deputy marshal uh, in Columbus, Ohio, as he was attempting to lawfully enter into his own home. Uh, he was in possession of a Subway sandwich uh, because he was feeding his grandmother and his younger brother. And uh, Casey Goodson was a lawful conceal, carry, uh, conceal and carry firearm owner, uh, which is allowed and legal in the mm -hmm. state of Ohio. Uh, and there are a number of conflicting stories as to what actually happened on that evening when he was killed. Uh, what we do know is that there is significant outrage because at the end of the day, many people, including myself, believe that Mr. Goodson should be alive today. Uh, the officer who did shoot him was in plain clothes. Uh, it is not clear mm -hmm. as to what led up to uh, Mr. Goodson being actually shot at or even followed in as much as he was not sus suspected of committing any crime, he was not involved in any investigation or the subject of any investigation. Uh, and so it's very unclear as to why the officer actually even followed or fired or stopped or attempted to apprehend Mr. Goodson. Uh, problematic on a number of levels. Uh, a week after the shooting, the officer and his attorney released a statement in which they claimed that Mr. Goodson had actually pointed his weapon at him uh, and 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 it was because of that that he fired at Mr. Goodson and ultimately fatally wounded him. The problem with that story is, of course, uh, there are no body cams in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, we don't know what happened. There are no dash cams that are going to support what actually happened. And we won't have an autopsy uh, for the next 12 to 14 weeks. Uh, there have been conflicting reports, of course, their lawyers uh, and, and the officer are claiming that Mr. Goodson was shot in the upper torso. Uh, in, in the side, uh, whereas Casey Goodson's family has said and maintained that he was shot in the back. Uh, and so there are a number of different very problematic narratives that are circling around this. But ultimately, as a former prosecutor and as a civil rights attorney, my conclusion is that Casey Goodson should be here to tell his side of the story, whatever that may be. So wh where has the NRA been on this so far? I, I, I can only imagine if a, a, a legal concealed carrying uh, white man were heading back from the subway, uh, headed to his home, and wound up in an altercation with the plainclothes officer, and wound up dead. The idea that he was armed would never remotely enter into the minds of the NRA leadership sure. to, justif to justify his, be his being dead. Uh, I almost feel like a sucker for even asking this question, but has the NRA weighed in in this situation? They have not, and, and I appreciate that question. It's an important thing to understand that the history of the NRA in America is very much so linked to actually being against or responding to the legal ownership of guns by black people, and that dates back several decades before now. 
But we knew this. We knew this going into the situation before Casey Goodson was even uh, brought up. We knew this from Philando Castile, who was killed in this, on the driver's side of his car mm -hmm. in Minnesota uh, a few years back. He also was a licensed firearm carrier, and the silence from the NRA was deafening. And so it comes as no surprise that in this instance, the NRA is nowhere to be found in terms of defending the rights of certain Americans to carry firearms, defending of the rights of certain Americans in terms of their Second Amendment liberties. Uh, but when it comes to black people in America, those those things don't apply. When it comes to Philando Castile, has the NRA done any uh, retrospective look at their reaction to that? Because that one uh, was so uh, egregious, uh, licensed firearm carrier. Uh, and you and you don't you don't have any he said she said about what happened because right. we have the video right. of of what happened. Uh, has there has there been any any uh, pushback from inside the NRA that has gotten them to apologize for the way that they handle that, or are they comfortable with the impression that that they support open carry or concealed carry for some Americans but not other Americans? I think their silence tells you everything that you need to know about how they feel about that. You know, I, I don't necessarily know that they've gone uh, as far as to retract anything that they uh, may have said or may not have said in terms of speaking up about the fact that they have that their silence, in fact, was very much so deafening in the cases of Philando Castile and when it comes to blacks and their Second Amendment rights. Um, but we are, like I said, we you know that that is very much so consistent with their history. I think. On a larger scale, what I find troubling is absent, or if you step beyond the actual individual cases of Philando Castile, or in this case, uh, Casey Goodson, there is a question about how law enforcement is engaging citizens in states that are legal to open carry or have concealed carry uh, licenses. So the idea in you know a state like uh, or, or in a jurisdiction like New York City, where I am right now, where it is just prohibitive for you to have a firearm out with you on your person absent very, very few uh, uh, select circumstances, that engages a certain approach from law enforcement that is understandable because you know under most circumstances, 99% of the time, that weapon is illegal, right? So mm -hmm. that's a different situation. But in these jurisdictions, when law enforcement is fully aware that it's very possible that whomever they, it is that they are encountering may legally be in possession of that firearm. The conversation needs to be, what is the approach? What are the protocols that are taking place? Because obviously they are not serving all people in the same way. And I think that if there's any failure on the NRA's part, that's perhaps the biggest one. If you step beyond the cases, obviously you don't want to deal with cases that have uh, or that involve black people who are carrying weapons legally. But there's still a larger question as to citizens as a whole in open carry jurisdictions and how those things are being dealt with. Right. And so at the same time that an agent of the state was uh, executing Goodson, we also had the case of Brandon Bernard, uh, who, who was who was also uh, executed very recently. Uh, tell us a little bit about his case. So what we have here is another example of state-sanctioned violence. After 17 years of a hiatus around federal death, pe death penalty cases uh, going to full execution, we have now seen a slew of federal death penalty cases that have carried out executions, with, unfortunately, Brandon Bernard being the most recent. Uh, part of what stirred the national uproar with respect to him was, was number one, 
that he was, at the time that he committed the crime and was convicted of the crime, a teenager. He was a teenager and he was executed at the age of 40. Uh, and then number two, we found out that during the trial, there was evidence that was withheld by the prosecutor's office from a police officer who was involved with the case that essentially said that, well, they did not believe, law enforcement did not believe that uh, Mr. Bernard was, in fact, a high-ranking official or a high-ranking member of the gang that he was affiliated with. That mattered because it ultimately was played by the prosecu prosecution's office as though he were on par with everyone else who was involved with the crime. He had a much serious, he had a much less serious role in the crime than than did many of his his uh, uh, compatriots, if you will. Uh, and and ultimately, uh, this was a case that many people had pleaded with the president as well as previous administrations to commute to a life sentence, not asking for his freedom, not asking for his release or his parole, but simply to commute for a, to a life sentence uh, instead of choosing execution, and that was denied. And uh, it is a travesty of justice, and I think it's illustrative of so many different things that are wrong with America's criminal justice system right now. Right, and uh, aside from the question of the, the death penalty itself, which is, which is completely barbaric, and, and also, aside from this, the idea of, of executing somebody for something they did when they were 18, and, and what he did, you know, he, he, went, he went along uh, with, some, with some buddies of his, and as, as we know, with teenagers, you know, you know there, there's a real impulse to just, to just, to just go along and, it, and just not, just not rock, rock the boat. Uh, he wasn't the one who was kind of in 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 the lead on this, but the, the, uh, one thing I wanted to raise real quickly because we're running out of time. Something you said about his his rank in in the gang, you know, the 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 jury and the and the judge were were quicker to execute the uh, you know both him and the other because they said that because of their rank in the gang, they're more likely to commit violence in the Correct. future, which which seems to me. To be executing somebody for something that they have not done yet, and I don't understand how that forget justice, how that can be constitutional, how that can be legal. How do you punish someone for something they haven't done yet, just on the possibility that they might do it? Well, you know, real, real, real quickly, because we're running out of time. Sure, I'm sorry notion, for filibustering. No problem. The notion is that you know you want to convince that these people that this person is the ultimate threat and danger to society. That's just to secure the conviction. That's not talking about the capital punishment phase of the trial, but what what that prosecutor was attempting to do and sort of painting that picture saying that this person needs to be off the streets and they need to have absolutely no chance of being back on the streets, which is what was used to secure the conviction and to sway that jury. But ultimately, what we know uh, is that there are several jurors who have now said and that they feel that he did not deserve the death penalty and that they would have voted differently uh, if they had the information, uh, which was also used during the, the sentencing portion of his trial, as well as uh, if, they, if, if you know, they knew what they knew about modern science in the brain. And so, again, for various reasons, one of which you just hinted on, this is just illustrative of how broken and problematic America's criminal justice system continues to be. It is. And, and Joe Biden... Once he's sworn in on the first day, ought to commute every single uh, death sentence. Uh, Charles Coleman, thank you so much for joining us here on the conversation. Thanks for having me.